1 Corinthians 9.22 To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we read this, we are reminded of the truth of the Incarnation, that you left your place by the Father's side in heaven, and you became a helpless baby. You came to live among us, that you might win us in our weakness. Lord Jesus, you became a servant of all, that you might display the love of the Father, and that you might ransom a people for your possession. So God, help us by the power of your Spirit to have our eyes open to the truth of your Word, and help us follow the example of our great King Jesus, and gladly give up our rights so that others might encounter the saving grace. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, my friends, welcome back to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how every page points us to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, friends, we are back in the book of 1 Corinthians. We've explored four themes, and we've got a fifth one that we're going to look at today. Just want to take an opportunity to, first off, thank you for listening to this podcast. And second of all, to remind you that I am using those two great books that I mentioned in our first episode and that are linked in our show notes. And that is what the New Testament authors really cared about and the story retold. And again, I heartily commend both of those books to you. They're excellent resources, and I'm making heavy use of their material. So, uh, I thank God for those authors and for the work that they've done. And again, encourage you to pick those up and read them for yourselves. But our fifth theme for our consideration today is that in 1 Corinthians, Paul aimed to become all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we find the Apostle Paul vigorously defending the existence of rights that he possesses. For example, he mentions the right to marry and the right to receive financial support. Now, we're probably used to people pounding on a table and insisting on their rights. But what's interesting is that Paul is explaining and defending the existence of these rights so that he can demonstrate how he gladly gives these rights up for the spread of the gospel. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 9, 5 through 14. Paul says, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? That's another name for Peter. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? The point that Paul is making here is that in normal human affairs, if you work, you're paid for your work. So Paul is laboring for the Corinthian church in the gospel, and yet he's not receiving money from them. He has the right to receive this money, but he is turning down that right so that he can work for a living. Verse 8. Do I say these things? Do I point to the right of a laborer to receive a wage? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law, the law of Moses, say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Now what Paul's doing here is he's taking an Old Testament command and he's identifying a timeless principle and then applying it to another situation. So you might reason it like this. If an ox has a right to earn a wage from its labor, right? The, the ox is pulling the plow through the field and he's eating as he goes. That's his, that's his wage. If an ox has that right, how much more does a human being have the right to receive wages for their labor? Paul says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Paul again would say, friends, if you pay your butcher for meat, if you pay the guy in the marketplace for fresh fruit and vegetables, 
How much more should you pay us since what we're giving you are the timeless, precious truths of the gospel? So he's established the right. I have the right to be paid. I have the right to be paid handsomely. But look what he says. Here's the twist. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But Paul says, I refuse this right. I want to become all things to all people so that I might save some. 1 Corinthians 9, 15-23 But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul says, I have to. He's like Jeremiah. If he stops talking, there's a fire in his bones. He must speak the gospel. For I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul's reward is preaching the gospel for the pleasure of Jesus Christ. That's his reward. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, there's a great way that we can see this principle illustrated in the ministry of Paul. Although, to be perfectly honest with you, it probably says more about Timothy and Titus than it does Paul. So, Paul says, I become all things to all people. I want people to know Christ. When Paul met Timothy, Timothy was uncircumcised. And when Paul took Timothy along with him, and remember that Paul's custom was to go into the synagogues in various cities and preach, he didn't want the fact that he had an uncircumcised man with him be a hindrance to the gospel, And so he asked Timothy to be circumcised, and Timothy went through it. And at the same time, as we read about in the book of Galatians, at the Jerusalem council, when those that we call Judaizers, those who preach that salvation comes by faith in Jesus plus obedience to the law of Moses, when they were trying to have Titus, who was also an uncircumcised man, be circumcised, Paul stood his ground and said, absolutely not. So it's not that Paul always gave way to every single demand or every single pressure, but Paul would judge each situation and ask the question, what best serves the cause of the gospel? And that would be the action that he took. Now, Paul has inserted this argument about his rights in the middle of a question that he was asked by the Corinthian church. And it's a question that we find very strange. Can believers eat meat offered to idols? Now, if you've read Corinthians and you've read Romans, you'll know that this is an issue that Paul addresses at length in these two books, and we find it very odd. So let me just give you some background context to help you out. In the ancient world, they didn't have Publix, they didn't have Kroger's or Walmart. If you went down to the market to get meat, which was something you could only afford very rarely, almost certainly that meat, before it reached whoever was selling it in the marketplace, had been likely offered up at a pagan temple as part of a worship service, for lack of a better term. And then the leftover meat had been sold to the market, and it would be then sold to the consumer. Now, the early Christian church was a mixture of both Jewish and Gentile believers. And you can imagine that for the Jewish believers, eating meat that had even in any way participated in a pagan sacrifice was completely off limits. It's just not even a question. No, of course not. 
But to someone from a Gentile background who grew up eating this meat, you think, why can't we? Of course we can. So they ask Paul, can we eat this meat? And as they're explaining this, some people insist that eating meat was their right. I mean, if Christ owns all things, he owns that piece of beef, I can eat it. 1 Corinthians 8, 9. Paul said he acknowledges that, yes, all things are yours in Christ, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Others in the Corinthian church are insisting that it's wrong. And Paul says, well, they're not correct. If you truly understand what God teaches, then this meat is not off limits. But listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 8, 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Paul says that some people think they're not supposed to eat this meat as a Christian, but they give in to pressure and they do it anyway. And their conscience is defiled. And Paul says that's wrong too. Now on one level, Paul's answer is simple. Christians should not take part in feasts at pagan temples. Now I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22, and I want to explain a concept that Paul is going to make reference to, and it's spiritual participation. So think of the Lord's Supper. When you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you are participating spiritually with Jesus. He is present there in some mystical, mysterious way. Think about the people of the Old Testament. When they would sin and they would bring their offering to the priest, they would kill the animal, they would offer it as a sacrifice, and they would eat some of the meat from that sacrifice. And they were participating spiritually in this meal with the priest, but also with Yahweh who was present there. So this idea of spiritual participation via food is a thoroughly biblical principle. So here's what Paul says. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, the Lord's Supper, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So we've established this principle, spiritual participation via food. So Paul's then going to bring this principle over into his current context. He says in verse 19, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? So he's saying, okay, don't, don't mistake me. If you go to a pagan temple and participate in a pagan sacrifice, I'm not saying that that God, Zeus or Hermes or Aphrodite, is real. He says, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, what they think they're offering to Zeus, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So when you go to the temple of Zeus, Christians can't tell themselves, well, listen, there's no such thing as Zeus, so whatever. I'm just here for the free, for, you know, for the free steak. No, no, no. You're participating spiritually with demons. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So one level of this question has been answered. Can a Christian go to a pagan temple and participate in the sacrifice just to get free food? Because after all, there's no such thing as these gods. And the answer is emphatically no. But what about meat purchased in the marketplace? Before it went up for sale, like I said, it would have been involved in pagan rituals. And Paul's answer to the question is a question. It's not, do you have the right? It's, will eating this meat block the spread of the gospel? And Paul says, don't eat meat if it causes a brother to stumble. 1 Corinthians 8, 9 through 13, but take care that this right, this right to eat all, God made everything, you can eat it, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone who sees you who have knowledge, so if you're a Christian and you understand that all these things that we've taught, if someone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, 
Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul says, if by me going and eating this food, I somehow imply to my brothers and sisters in Christ that you can both worship Jesus and the false gods, that I am destroying the brother for whom Christ died. And because of Christ's union with his saints, if I sin against my brother, I'm sinning against Christ. So the question is not, can I eat the meat? But is this meat going to cause a brother to stumble? Paul says, don't eat meat if it blocks the spread of the gospel. He says, verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. We've heard this language before, remember? All things are lawful, the Corinthian church says. And Paul says, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. So anything you go to the market, it's for sale. You can buy it. God made it. Tuck in and say thank you. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So if your neighbor invites you over and your neighbor's not a Christian and he puts meat in front of you, you don't have to ask. You know, we can imagine someone like, is this free range? Is this organically sourced? They would ask, was this offered in a pagan temple? No, we don't have to ask that. He says, however, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, do not eat it. So if you, as a Christian, go to an unbeliever's house and they say to you, oh, uh, this meat was offered at a sacrifice to Zeus and we eat this meal as a celebration of Zeus's generosity. You as a Christian cannot eat it because you are lying to that person because Zeus is not the maker of all. He didn't make squat. Jesus is the maker of all. And so we do not want to lie to people that you can both worship Jesus and worship other gods. So the question is not, can I eat this? The question is, does this bring glory to Jesus? Verse 31 of chapter 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. On the one level, friends, one of the worst things that we can have happen to us is seek to be a people pleaser instead of seeking to please God. But Paul says, my burning desire is to please the Lord Jesus. I want to glorify him in everything that I do, whether it comes down to the food that I eat or the wine that I drink or don't drink. But because I love Jesus, I want other people to love Jesus. And so if I have to give up my rights to please these people so that they can hear me proclaim Christ, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And as always, brothers and sisters, Christ is our example. He gave up his rights for us. And when we enter into his kingdom, the gate is so narrow that our rights won't fit through the door. And if we want to come into the kingdom of Christ, we leave our rights at the door. And that is a very, very hard word for American Christians, but it's one that we need to hear. But friends, take heart, because not only is Christ our example, he's also our power. If he was just our example, we would all feel really bad about ourselves. But Christ died and rose again in victory so that he could give us his Holy Spirit so that we can give up our rights gladly for the sake of the proclamation of the gospel. And I pray that all of us, myself included, would do just that gladly. So friends, the next time we come together, it will be our last time exploring the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to take a look at the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. But for now, take up and read, my friends. God bless. God bless.